Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Let's turn in our Bibles today to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, as, as uh, Paul writes here to these saints at Philippi, he says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. You see here Paul gives to these Philippians, he gives to them, uh, several instructions uh, about obeying, as he talks about o- obeying there. He's talking about obeying the Word of God. In fact, all of the instructions that he gives them in those verses revolve around the Word of God. Uh, they're to obey the Word of God. They are, when he talks about God working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, uh, God does that through the, the, the person of the Holy Spirit, but realize that the Holy Spirit works in concert with the Word of God, Right? Uh, when he talks about being blameless and harmless, uh, of course the the very thing that would define how to walk blameless and harmless would be the word of God. And so after describing all those things, he says in verse 16, holding forth the word of life. Holding forth the word of life. And this is not an instruction here to pastors or to missionaries or to uh, people involved in in full-time Christian service. But this is an instruction to all believers to hold forth that word. And it calls it the word of life. God's word is the word of life. And and today we're going to look at some things regarding the word of God and the word of God in our day. Some people would question whether we even have the word of God today. Is this something that was only true when when these things were written here about the Word of God? Was that only true in the first century when they had the actual, uh, you know, actual writings of the apostles or, you know, original copies of those writings? Um, Or was this something that was instructed so that down through the ages people would have the Word of God? Uh, You know that today, if you go into a Christian bookstore and you're looking to buy a Bible, they'll have a whole wall there, a whole shelf full of Bibles, uh, most of which will say Holy Bible on the front, and which are claiming to be the Word of God. And yet, when you pick up those Bibles and you read them and you look at what, what they say, you find differences between them. All right, Go, go over to uh, the Gospel of Mark. Go to, the, go to Mark chapter 1. This is a... This is a a good verse here for uh, the reason that it it can be used to separate between Bibles. And I'll tell you what I mean by that in just a moment. But Mark chapter 1, verse 2. Of course, the Gospel of Mark is going to talk about the the, uh, life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, verse 1 says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 2 says, as it is written in the prophets... 
Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, some of you might have a Bible that didn't read the same way as I just read that verse. You might have a Bible that says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. Okay? And the, the interesting thing about that is if you have a Bible that says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, you may have a, a note. Many Bibles will have notes, cross-references. It'll tell you where quotes in the Bible are from. And the quote in the rest of verse 2, when it says, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. You may have a note in your Bible that tells you where that is a quote from. And it's not from Isaiah. It's from the book of Malachi. It's from Malachi chapter 3. Now the next verse, verse 3, when it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That is a quote from Isaiah. All right. So if you're using a King James Bible or, or uh, you know, a Bible, we'll talk about some of the differences between some of the Bibles. But you see it says in the King James Bible, as it is written in the prophets, and then it quotes from two different prophets. But many Bibles have, again, have that Isaiah the prophet there, and then it goes on to quote Malachi. Now that is an error in the Bible, in those Bibles that would read that way. And it's not an error of translation. It's not that that a translator just translated things wrong. Um, It's it's an error, actually, in the texts that underlie the Bible. Now, the Bible, you know, the New Testament, was originally written in the Greek language. Greek Greek in its day was kind of like English is today. It was the language of the world. And so the New Testament, being, being written for you know, going out into that Gentile world, was written originally in that Greek language. And copies were made. Um, Just like, you know, just like with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you know, you had the original writings of, of, you know, whoever the prophet who wrote it. But then people made copies because if you write something down on paper and you're using that paper, it's going to wear out. Or even if you're using animal skins or something like that to write on, it's going to wear out. And so you make copies. Plus, if you only have the the original that Moses wrote down or that uh, Isaiah wrote down or some other prophet wrote down, uh, that's not very accessible to people, right? So you make copies to to propagate the Word of God and, and get it out there so it's available to people. And the same kind of thing happened with the New Testament. These things were written down, they were copied out, they were sent out among the churches, uh, so that by, even by the end of the first century, you had these local churches had copies of most of the New Testament. And um, the, there, there came to be certain copies that had errors in them. Now, you can get an error in a copy for various reasons. Sometimes there might be an error. I mean, imagine if you're copying out the whole New Testament by hand, you might make some errors in your copying of it, right? Um, there can also be errors because there were people out there teaching false doctrines that were intentionally trying to change things in the Word of God, that were intentionally trying to take some things out, add other things in. And you may remember in the city of Alexandria, and in Alexandria, there was a, a, a very um, heretical, almost cultic form of, they, they would have called themselves Christians, but there wasn't much that, that resembled biblical Christianity. And, you know, at Alexandria also, that was a place of, of knowledge and learning. And there were copies of the New Testament being made there, although it's interesting when you look at the copies that come from Alexandria, they don't match the copies of the Bible from other places in the world. And, in fact... 
uh, the reason behind that difference in some Bibles in Mark 1-2 is not a difference in translation, but it's a difference in text. And down through history, there have basically been two lines of biblical text. Now, that's a little bit of an oversimplification because there's variations and things. But essentially, there have been two lines of biblical text. There has been a, a line of biblical text that probably originated at Antioch that um, came, you know, came down through history and is, is what is represented in the King James Bible. There was another line of text that largely originated from Alexandria and that line of text was, in, in many places, really unused. In fact, many of these texts were just discovered in fairly recent times. They weren't things that were actively used. And predominantly, the more modern Bible translations, like the NIV, like um, many of these plethora of Bible versions that you see in the, in the Christian bookstores today, use that other line of text. And the one line of text, the the and, and the line of text that the King James Bible comes from has come to be known as the Textus Receptus, which is just Latin for the received text, meaning it was the accepted text, Greek text, that the churches had used down through history. And that received text says, just as your King James Bible translates in Mark 1-2, as it is written in the prophets. The, the, that other line of text, and really what most of the modern Bibles come from, is what's called a critical text where they take a bunch of these different Greek copies and sort of piece them together to come up with what they think the Bible might have said. And that text says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. So it's not a difference of translation. And in fact, many of the differences that you'll find between Bibles are not differences of translation. They're a difference in what they were translating. Okay? Um, you can't translate, I mean, it's not going to wind up the same if the original that you're translating from is different. And that's why you see some of these differences. Now, that might seem to be a fairly minor difference, although I would argue if there's an error in that place. If, if I believed, if I believed that, for instance, the New International Version of the Bible was the Word of God, and I was to come to a verse like that and see an error there, it would, it would make me have to question where, what other errors are there. Where are all the other errors? If there's an error in that, in something that's so easily verified, I mean, you can just turn over and look for the verse in Isaiah and see it's not there and see that it's in Malachi. If there's an error in, in something like that, how could there not be errors in more weighty things that it would be harder to check out? In fact, when you compare these differences between these Bible versions and the differences that are related to the text, you find that the, many of the changes have to do with the doctrine of the Trinity. For instance, go over to uh, 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 verse 7 is the clearest verse in your Bible on the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, it's not the only verse in the Bible on the doctrine of the Trinity. There are many others, certainly. But it is the clearest verse in the Bible on the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, it says, 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Verse 8 says, And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now, that's a verse that appears in the text that the King James Bible comes from. It does not appear, verse 7, does not appear in these 
other texts that many of the modern Bibles use. In fact, many modern Bibles will take verse 7 and put it in a footnote and have a note there saying it doesn't belong in the Bible. Um, Now, in order to to make the numbers work out, what they do is they take the first half of verse 8, move it up and call it verse 7, call the last half of verse 8, verse 8, and what they've really done is removed a verse altogether and removed the clearest verse in the Bible on the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, that's where you'll find many of the changes are made. Many of the differences between these Bibles have to do with the deity of Christ. Uh, For instance, the the King James Bible uh, will refer to, uh, there's there's a a verse, we don't need to turn to it, but it refers to uh, Joseph and Jesus' mother, right? And in the, in the corrupt text, it says Jesus' father and mother. Well, Joseph was not Jesus' father. God was Jesus' father. And again, the, the, you know, the pure text refers to it correctly. The corrupt text refers to Joseph as Jesus' father, casting doubt on the deity of Christ. Um, you, you find many, many of the, the changes. There are many places in your King James Bible where it mentions the blood of Christ and the, the purpose and, and the... Um, the uh, effect of the, the shedding of that blood of Christ that are left out in many modern Bibles. And it's because those Bibles rely heavily on those texts that come from Alexandria. If you, you remember the heresies that were taught at Alexandria, they did away with the deity of Christ. They didn't believe in the Trinity. You know? And so it's no, it's no wonder that those Bibles that use that text um, have those those doctrinal heresies in them. Now, I'm not saying that you can't find verses in the New International Version that talk about the Trinity. You can. But they've removed a lot of them, and they've changed a lot of them. And uh, certainly you can show the deity of Christ from the New International Version, but it's a lot harder because a lot of the verses are gone. Uh, I'll show you another verse that's, that's missing. Um, go over to Acts chapter 8. And you can go... I mean, we're just looking at a few of these. You can go on... Um, you can go on uh, the internet and get lists of these verses, these differences. Acts chapter 8, this is the, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is witnessing here to this Ethiopian. And the, the uh, Ethiopian believes on Christ. He, the Ethiopian is reading in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, which is about the crucifixion of Christ. And he asks Philip, Philip comes, comes up alongside of his chariot there, and he asks Philip, who is it talking about? He can't understand who it's talking about. And Philip tells him it's about Jesus Christ. And the Ethiopian believes on Jesus. And in, um, in verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Verse 37, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And in verse 38 it says, He commanded the chariot to stand still. They went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, some Bibles leave out verse 37, and in fact, here they don't even try and disguise the fact that they left out the verse. Uh, You'll find in some Bibles, if you look at the verse numbers, they'll go 35, 36, 38 in that that passage. And they might have verse 37 in the margin or down as a footnote or or something like that. Now, think about what that does to the passage. Uh, In in the passage the way it is in in, uh, the authorized version of the Bible, you see it puts the emphasis on believing. Here, the, the eunuch 
uh, is going to be water baptized. He wants to be baptized. And Philip tells him he can only be baptized if he believes with his heart. And he makes a, a profession of faith and says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then he gets water baptized. You leave out verse 37 and it takes out the issue of faith and just puts the issue on the baptism. Right? You leave out verse 37 and the, the eunuch says, what does hinder me to be baptized? And in verse 38 he goes and he gets baptized. And it's no accident that there are churches that teach water baptism as something that, that is, it has effect whether you have faith or not. Because they put the emphasis on the authority of the church and, and the uh, power of the church instead of on faith. And you see how leaving that verse out plays right into that false doctrine, right? And, and so these things, even, even these omissions that may not seem like large issues, become large issues. And they come to support false doctrines. And so how can we know, how can, if there's these competing texts out there, how can we know that we have the Word of God? If it's our job to hold forth the, the Word of life, if it's our job to hold fast the faithful Word as we've been taught, how do we know we even have the Word of God? And not only that, we, we, don't even, we don't even read it in Greek, we read it in English, we read a translation of it. How can we be sure that we have a, a translation that truly is the Word of God and the Word of life? Um, now, again, uh, when you go through God's Word, what you see is that it was never God's intent with that Word, it was never God's intent just to, just to have one copy of it and everybody have to go to that one copy. It was always God's intent to propagate the Word of God. To, to get it out among people because there's power in that word, right? So if you go back in the Old Testament, you know that the, the kings of Israel, you know the very first thing that they were commanded to do as king, when a new king was anointed, the first thing he was supposed to do was to go and by hand write out a personal copy of the law. And they kept the, the original, the original book of the law that Moses actually wrote with his own hand. There was a, a special place in the Ark of the Covenant where they kept that book. And the king would have to go, when he became king, he would go and get that original copy and he would write out by hand his own copy of that book. Of, it would have really been a scroll. Uh, he wrote out his own copy of that so that he would have a personal copy of it. Um, you see throughout the Bible... Uh, you see that also the practice of copying the Word of God protected it from destruction. Because it would be easy, if there's just one copy of the Word of God, it would be easy to go and destroy that. But when you have a million copies, when you have ten million copies, you can't go out and destroy every single one. People have tried, and they haven't been able to do it. And you put those copies out there. By the way, those mistakes, honest mistakes, that somebody would make in copying, that you can, you can ferret those out, because all of us are not going to make a mistake in the same place. If all of us were going to copy out a copy of the Bible by hand, we would all make mistakes. But what are the chances that every one of us are going to make a mistake in the same place? Very, very minuscule. And so you can compare the copies and you can see if there's only a mistake in this one and all the other ones read this way, that one's probably wrong, right? Uh, realize that, that when the modern Bibles, when they use this you know, this corrupt text, that's the minority text. In fact, they are heavily relying really on three Greek texts. Three Greek texts, which read different from thousands of other Greek texts, and yet the modern Bibles will favor those, favor those three. They're called Sinaiticus, 
um, Vaticanus and Alexandrinus, they'll favor those three above thousands that read another way. All right? Now, now keep in mind, with that said, that doesn't always mean, because of, again, false doctrines and things that entered into the church, that doesn't always mean that the majority is right, but it means that in many cases, in most cases, the majority would probably be right. Uh, in fact, in some of those verses that, that we've looked at, the majority don't read the way you have it in your King James Bible, but there are other reasons why those need to be included. And so there's, you know, there's always been, or, or for a very long time, um, there have always been people who have been going out, you know, trying to determine what is the Word of God. In fact, in the time of the Protestant Reformation, you had a lot of this because now the emphasis was put back on the Word of God, not just on church tradition. And if the emphasis is on the Word of God, we better know what the Word of God is. And so you have men before the Protestant Reformation, men like Erasmus, who were compiling texts of the Bible. And Erasmus, Erasmus in many ways was a Protestant. He never left the Roman church, but he in many ways was a Protestant and certainly had a great, great uh, reverence for the Word of God. And it was out of that Protestant Reformation that you have the King James Bible. Right? So the, the Protestant Reformation is in the, the 16th century, and in the 17th century, the very beginning of the 17th century, you have the, the King James Bible produced. Now, that's not to say that the King James Bible is the only English Bible that you could call the Word of God. There, there were other English Bibles that came before it, that came from that right text, that, that uh, were faithful translations of the Word of God. In fact, much of the King James Bible is just repetition of earlier English translations of the Bible that came before it. I have up in my office a copy of Tyndale's New Testament. And in most cases, you can take Tyndale's New Testament and compare it to the King James Bible, and they're pretty much exactly the same. Uh, much of the Geneva Bible as well is exactly the same as the King James Bible. And there was a, there was a, a process, a refining process, and a long line of English Bibles that eventually culminated in the King James Bible. Okay. Uh, so it's not just like some translators started down from scratch to, to translate the Bible into English. They had a lot of good work before them to borrow from and to, and to advance upon. And these men, when you, when you wonder whether it's a faithful translation or not, um, these men knew the languages, Greek and Hebrew, as well as many other languages. They didn't just look at Greek and Hebrew versions of the Bible. They looked at many other Bibles. You know, some people would question whether we can really have the Word of God in a translation. Because, you know, when you translate from one language to another, there's, there's always differences of meaning, right? Uh, when you, you know, when you translate in that way, uh, there are certain words that don't translate well from one language to another. There are certain cultural meanings and connotative meanings to words that don't translate well. And yet, you can, you can accurately translate between languages. When you read in the newspaper, and it's reporting on, on some foreign head of state and some speech that they gave, and it tells you what they said, um, you realize that they spoke it in another language, and you're reading a translation of it. But do you doubt that that translation could be an accurate translation of what they say? Uh, now, maybe it is and maybe it isn't, but there's at least the possibility. I mean, it is possible to have an accurate translation from one language to another, right? Uh, in fact, this was one of the arguments that the King James translators themselves used. If you ever, if you ever uh, see a, like a reprint of the 1611 King James Bible, there's a thing in the front that's called Translators to the Reader, and it's sometimes referred to as the preface to the King James Bible, and they, and they make that defense. Um, you know, they... they 
say that uh, a translation, an accurate translation of the Word of God is the Word of God. And, you know, that's borne out by Scripture as well. You know that in the New Testament, I mean, if, if you want to believe, as some people do, that you can never have an accurate translation from one language into another, what about when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament? Now, that's the Holy Spirit inspiring Scripture, and you have translation from Hebrew into Greek. Can that not be an accurate translation? I mean, certainly the Holy Spirit could accurately translate his own words from Hebrew into Greek. And so if that translation is possible, then certainly it's possible to have an accurate translation from one language into another. Uh, in fact, there are you know, many, many examples uh, in the Bible of, of translation from one language into another. Go to, uh, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Notice, notice what Paul says here about the scriptures. He's writing to Timothy. And he says in verse 14, but continue thou in the things, uh, verse 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, notice he says that Timothy from a child had known the holy scriptures. Now, first of all, Timothy is not, he didn't learn the original scriptures that Moses wrote down, that Isaiah wrote down. Timothy had copies of those things. Right? So, so first of all, the copies are called Holy Scriptures. And it's also likely, Timothy, if you remember, Timothy, his mother was Jewish. His father was a Gentile. Uh, Timothy has a, a Greek name. Okay, So he's raised in Greek culture. And it's possible that the Holy Scriptures that Timothy learned from were not Hebrew Scriptures, but were Greek translations of the Hebrew Scriptures, which were available in, the, in that time. Right? And yet, Paul calls what Timothy had learned holy scriptures. Well, that applies as well to a faithful translation of the scriptures as it does to a, a copy or to the originals themselves. So, so what I'm saying to you in all of that is, first of all, that all Bibles are not the same. And when you're deciding what Bible you're going to use for Bible study, the Bible you choose is going to have a definite impact on how, how you grow as a believer, how mature you become as a believer, because you can't learn sound doctrine that's not in the Bible that you're using. Right? You can't learn the verses that are left out because they're not there. And so, so you need to understand some things about the differences between Bibles. That verse I gave you in Mark 1-2, by the way, is a good litmus test. If you're in the, in the bookstore and you're thinking about buying a Bible, look up Mark 1-2. If it says Isaiah the prophet, that's not a good Bible for you to use. If it says the prophets, that's going to be one that comes from the right text. Okay? Um, and, and so be aware of those things when you're choosing what Bible to use. They're not all the same. There's differences between them, and there are some major doctrinal differences between them. The other thing is that when you have the, that Bible that you've identified as being a faithful translation of the pure Word of God, and, and I would recommend you the King James Bible. I recommend you the King James Bible because it is, to my knowledge, the only accurate fairly literal translation of that pure text 
into English that's commonly available today. Now, you can go out some places and find copies of the Geneva Bible. And again, I, I would say the Geneva Bible's uh, claim to be the Word of God is, is on a par with the King James Bible. Right? You can read Tyndale's New Testament and those other things, but it, usually you're not going to find them in the Bible bookstore. You will find a King James Bible. Right? And that's the one I would recommend to, you, to use. And my other point to you is, you can trust that Bible. It is the Word of God. It is the Holy Scriptures. It is the, the Scripture that, as Paul wrote to Timothy, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, all of that only works when you study it. Don't, don't go out and buy the right Bible and be all puffed up that you got the right Bible and then leave it there on the shelf all week. Right? The, way it, the way it is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction and righteousness is that you open it up and you see, then it'll be that sharp sword and it'll divide, between, divide asunder between soul and spirit in you. And it'll be a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart. And it'll build you up in doctrine, but it'll reprove and rebuke you as well. It'll correct you and it'll instruct you in righteousness. And take that word of God and, and treat it as the word of God. Hold, as the verse said, holding forth the word of life. Don't just read it for yourself, hold it forth for other people. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone, 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace. 